Welcome back to the women. Nope, wait, what? Welcome back to Stempatal, your women in science history podcast. I'm one of your co hosts, Dr. Emlyn Gremlin. And I'm your other co host, Dr. Emma Dilemma. See, I messed it up this week, and you're right on the ball. <laughs> no ho hosts over here, no. just co hosts. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> All right, so I think we should just jump right in because we've been chatting before this for quite a while and I'm hungry. Right, right. All right, so I was this week inspired. Uh, Inspired is maybe the wrong word. I'm not sure what the right word is. Uh, I was inspired this week by some kind of gross news coming from science Twitter. Which, Emma, yeah. uh, we've talked about quite a bit, um, but yeah, for people who haven't heard about it, uh, I don't want to get too much into the details. There's plenty of articles to read about it, but essentially oh my gosh. <laughs> essentially, what happened is the head of the non-for-profit Me Too STEM, Dr. Beth Ann McLaughlin, who I'm pretty sure we've given a Women Who Work <laughs> shout out to in the past... Yeah, I think so. She was discovered to have been impersonating a Hopi anthropologist on Twitter, um, and then to have subsequently, quote unquote, killed her off due to COVID for some, like, confusing reasons. Uh, (sighs) Essentially, there's a lot of great write-ups about this and why it's important and disturbing, um, but I don't, we're not going to really talk about that today. Instead, I want to talk about a Native American anthropologist and archaeologist who has since been relatively forgotten. Her story is stranger than fiction, but I promise that her story is actually true. I know who this is. Do you? I'm pretty sure. (laughs) Okay. Is it? Okay, wait. No, no. You say it. Okay. So today we're going to talk about Bertha Parker. Yay! Yeah. yeah. I've almost um, done her before, like, covered her before. But I don't know why. I've always been like, maybe next time, maybe next time. So I'm excited you're actually doing it. Her story is... It's bana- crazy. It is bananas. It's a lot. Like, she... I don't know. She's just, like, new famous people, right? And... Yeah. Yeah, anyway. Uh, I won't jump ahead too much. It's going to be a whirlwind of emotions, I think. Okay, interesting. But I'm excited. Yeah. It was really fun to research. Yay, that's cool. And she's awesome. So I'm excited to I'm excited to get into it. And I want to say, okay, I do want to say one more thing. Yes. About the yeah, I don't, I don't want to, we don't have to thing. fully blow it off. I just didn't want to get too in the weeds. Yeah. Which is just that, you know, we... St- obviously still support the me too stem movement yeah we just um we're you know sad that the leader or purported leader of that movement has turned out to be a complete fraud Mm -hmm. but we hope like people don't devalue the movement itself because it has helped a lot of people um 
And hopefully we'll be even better at doing that from now on. Yeah, and I think she has stepped down, so. Yeah, which is, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's but important yes, to, let's, to mention. Let's uh, let's talk about someone else. Yeah, let's talk about hey. Bertha Parker. All right, so Bertha Parker was born in 1907 in Ch- Chautauqua County, New York. Okay. So her mother, Beulah Dark Cloud uh, Tahamont, was an actress and appeared in a handful of Western films during the silent era, including right. films such as, I mean, I, you're not going to probably have heard of any of these. I have, I have no knowledge of silent <laughs> films, really. But No, um, I don't think I've ever seen a one. No. Actually, I think I, I took a film class and I watched some silent oh. films, but... Uh, so she was in movies such as Desert Gold and Crimson Challenge. Yeah, a lot of these, like, Western films that were really big. Yeah. Additionally, her maternal grandparents, Elijah Chief Dark Cloud Tahamunt and Margaret Dovey Camp, were also actors at this time. Wow. So a big, she grew up in a big, like, Hollywood actor family. Right. So her grandfather, Dark Cloud, was a chief of the Abenaki, a First Nations a band government belonging to the Eastern Algonquin peoples of Northeastern North America. Wow. Just a kind of a powerful, I don't know, seemingly powerful family. Yeah. From what I can tell so far. Yeah, I think so. Um, And then her father was Arthur C. Parker, who was an archaeologist and the first president of the Society for American Archaeology. Oh, wow. Okay. So archaeologist father... Um, actress mother. Wow. And were both of her parents Native American? No, I'm fairly certain that it was just her mother. Okay. Yeah. So, Bertha Parker was pretty much literally born into archaeology, as she was reportedly <laughs> to, reported to have been born in a tent at one of her father's <gasps> dig sites. Oh my gosh. So, you know, bor- born right into it. That's crazy. I that's kind of cool that her mom would travel with her dad to his dig sites. Yeah. Like supposedly. If, yeah. Or maybe she was just there that one time. Yeah, I, I didn't have too much pregnant. information about that, but that was Yeah. She does uh I know that as a child, Bertha assisted her father in his excavations quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. And so she got exposure to archaeology and kind of field work from an early age yeah. up until about age seven. Cool. At, at age seven, her parents divorced uh, in 1914, and Bertha moved to L.A. with her mother and grandparents to work in Hollywood films. Wow. And I don't think she was in any Hollywood films. I think it was mostly her mother and her grandparents. But okay. it's kind of hard to find information. About yeah, that. yeah. So then, as a teenager, Bertha and her mother performed in a Ringling, Bro- Ringling Barnum and Bailey Brothers circus act. What called the quote Pocahontas show, which I'm oh sure was gosh. very respectful. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure none of these things were very respectful. Yeah, I. 
the movies or the circus show. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I, I have a Western feeling there was a movies. lot of really offensive uh, depictions yeah. of Native Americans. Yeah. So... Jeez. So yeah, she was in this Pocahontas show as a teenager, and then she was still in Hollywood after that. So Bertha met Joseph Palin on a Hollywood set during this time, and she fell in love with him. And Joseph was a Hollywood extra and a Yuma Indian, and they started this like love affair. um, And after getting pregnant, she married him in the early 1920s. And okay. together they had Wilma May, quote, uh, their n- nicknamed Billy uh, Palin in 1925. Okay. However, things took a turn when <laughs> Joseph became abusive oh, uh, no. during this time. And so Bertha attempted to divorce him. Okay. In response to her wanting to divorce him, Joseph kidnapped her mom, Beulah. <gasps> Bertha herself and their son, Billy. No. And tried to, and fled across the Mexican border. Oh my God. This is why I'm saying. I have not read about this. (laughs) This is why I'm saying this is stranger than fiction. This is like a crazy story. Okay. Yeah. So according to a family friend, um, they were confined in a Mexican brothel. No. Before her uncle-in-law and famed archaeologist, Mark Raymond Harrington, came riding on horseback with the sheriff to save them. How is any of this, like, (laughs) real? It sounds so bonkers. I know. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Wow. So, Mark Harrington, famed archaeologist, on horseback right. with the sheriff, rides down to this Mexican brothel and brings back the whole family. Oh Beulah, Bertha, and Billy. Um, and brings them back to his dig site in Nevada. Okay. Okay. <laughs> now- All on one horse, or- I, you know, let's, uh, let's suppose all on one horse. <gasps> Why not? Oh it's a gosh. it's a very big horse. <laughs> the story's crazy enough. <laughs> maybe, you know. Maybe. maybe. So so how Mark so um how Mark Harrington, this famous archaeologist, fits into this is that uh he had j- recently married Bertha's aunt. Uh, Edna Parker. So he had married into the family, and then this crazy kidnapping had happened, and he had gone down there. Um, so once everybody was back at the dig site, he and he and um, his wife, Bertha's aunt, Edna Parker, right. they invited Bertha to stay at the archaeological site and work as the cook camp and uh, expedition secretary. And this whole dig was for the Southwest Museum. So she was employed by the Southwest Museum. So she was, so she accepted the job and became this camp cook and uh, expedition secretary. Nice. So for this role, um, she cleaned, repaired, and cataloged archaeological finds. And although she had no formal training, she had a keen eye for picking out things in the surroundings so she could tell apart what was natural versus maybe like, a human made or an artifact. Uh, 
Okay, yeah. And she also enjoyed working in the field. So she really kind of thrived when she got some of this experience. Oh. And in addition to doing um, her duties as the cook and the secretary, she also, uh, Harrington taught her more archaeological methods in the field about how to uh, excavate things. Um, And she often spent her free time helping out at the dig um, or exploring the, the sites. Wow. So she's getting a lot of like hands-on experience during this time. Yeah, and it seems like yeah, she's getting some mentorship mm-hmm. too. Um getting opportunities to yep. learn new things. Yeah. And so in 1929, she discovered on her own uh, a Pueblo site at what's known as Scorpion Hill, Uh-oh. and she named, excavated, and documented the site completely on her own. Whoa. So yeah, she took the tools that Harrington had give, given her and then discovered the site and then, you know, went through it all on her own. And her oh findings gosh. were exhibited in the Southwestern Museum. Wow. So what kind of stuff, like, was at these sites? Um, it's mostly early human civilizations, like okay, yeah. So tools and uh, bones and stuff like that. Ooh, wow! Yeah. So she then worked at Gypsum Cave, which is a limestone cave fifteen miles east of Las Vegas, uh, which had been discovered by Mark Harrington around this time, oh. and. At Gypsum Cave, in addition to her normal secretarial duty, she also explored the cave and was able to reach some of the most inaccessible crevices in the cave because oh. she was a very she was very small. Aw. <laughs> so she did a lot That's of funny. spelunking like on her own. I would not do that because <gasps> I'm terrified. That's scary. Yeah, spelunking, which for anyone who doesn't know, somehow is just going into caves, yeah. right? But it's like you're going through often like small crevices yep. and it's dark, right? Especially then I feel like it would just, I'm just imagining not, they're not being, do they have flashlights then? I don't think so, right? They probably had like oil lights, lamps or something. Yeah. Ooh. No. I know. So. No, no, no. Not for me. Nope. In one of these relatively inaccessible crevices, she found the skull of the giant ground sloth. <gasps> what? Yes. Giant ground oh, sloth. Wow. It, it's the so, story has I, everything. <laughs> I get like I always forget there used to be these huge tigers yes. and sloths yes. in North America. Yes. And like yeah, just things that don't exist here anymore. Yes. Sad. So she found these the skull of this giant ground sloth alongside ancient human tools. Whoa. And these Do you find- think they were eating it? Oh, sorry. Um, I don't think, I mean, I think what they could surmise is that the findings were in such close proximity that it suggested that sloths and tool-wielding humans lived in the cave at the same time. Wait. you? I don't... <laughs> That they lived next to a giant sloth? <laughs> I think relatively like, same pet? time. I think relatively oh, same oh. time. Like, same era. 
Ah, okay. I thought you meant like <laughs> they were keeping it as a pet. <laughs> like, it's pet. Little they're like, pet okay, sloth. sloth. Sloth, you have that area, and we'll have this area. Okay. Sloth, I'm I'm cross. I'm making a line in the sand. Do not cross, or we're gonna have some beef. Just stay over there. Um, right. That makes more sense. They not maybe the same day, yeah, but the yeah. same time span. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, and this was Sorry. also <laughs> no, no, like, yeah, checks out. So this was also some of the early, this was the earliest re- record of human inhabitants in North America at the time. Oh, wow. And it was later dated back with like uh, carbon dating to about 11,000 BC. Whoa. Oh my gosh. And birth Wait, is- but Emlyn, it's only 2020. <laughs> How can that... <laughs> It's 2020. It's only humans have only. Been oh, <laughs> I, I thought you were correcting my math, and I was like, "Wait, I think wait, there was no math involved." No. Um, I'm yes. pretending like I don't think the Earth is very old. I gotcha. I understand. <laughs> I understand. Um, yes. Anyway, go on. <laughs> so, uh, Bertha's finding was lauded as quote the most outstanding anthropological find ever made in the United States. At the time. Wow. It was also the most important. That's really incredible. Yeah. It was also um, the most important find of the entire expedition, according Whoa. to Mark Harrington, and drew financial support from the California Institute of Technology and the Carnegie Institute Ooh. of Washington. So she wow. brought the dough. Hell yeah. I've had so much coffee also. <laughs> I'm looking she and I have... She brought the dough. She brought the dough. I'm drinking out of our Stem Fatal mug and it has Woo! hot coffee. And then I also made myself an iced coffee. What? And I don't know why, why? I have both. I don't know. <laughs> but I'm drinking both of them and I'm feeling insane. Love it. Mm-hmm. You're feeling it. Feeling yeah, it. Sometimes we just... Sometimes you just gotta have a ton of coffee. Sunday fun day! Yep. <laughs> better than a bunch of alcohol. It's better than a bunch you know? of alcohol, yeah. <laughs> so it's too early for... I can't day drink. That's neither here nor there. No, 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 no. Okay. Anyways, so she brought in the dough. Yeah. Ooh. And so at this time, in addition to bringing in finances... For the expedition, she also, this groundbreaking discovery of her has gained her widespread recognition as the first indigenous archaeologist. And she was also one of the few women in general to achieve such success in the field at that time. Whoa. Oh, my gosh. Moreover, um, she was well known for being an archaeologist that got there by non-traditional means. So, you know, she didn't go, she doesn't have higher education in archaeology or anthropology. She just kind of learned it on the ground. Yep. Sometimes you just got to take whatever opportunities are given to you. Yep. College is expensive. Yeah. And, you know, in those times, also not not available. (laughs) Probably not available. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah. So during this same expedition at Gypsum Cave, Bertha also discovered a fossil camel bone that was protruding from an eroding lake bed in the same area. 
And so this fossil led her to discover another ancient site, the site of Corn Creek, which had indications of human use dating back to 5000 BC. So she had this really good knack for finding sites. Yeah. She had the eye. She had the eye. While, so while working at Gypsum Cave during this time, she also met the paleontologist James Thurston in 1930. Um, she subsequently married him in 1931. It was a quick cave romance. Quick turnaround. Quick turnaround. Um, it also abruptly ended because James suddenly died of a heart attack while lifting a rock on site that same year. Oh my gosh. I know. It's, she's not having good luck with, with husbands. No, no. It's not. At least this one didn't kidnap her. At least this one, he didn't even have time. Oh. Well, I hope he didn't even want. (laughs) Yes, that is a good (laughs) one. That's my, like, um, threshold for for husbands. It's like, do you want to kidnap me? No? Okay, let's let's do this. This uh, this ought to work, then. Mm -hmm. This this is probably going to be pretty good, then. All right, so Bertha, at this same time, like, uh, subsequently after her brief husband um, died, she became very sick due to large amounts of guano in the cave. Oh, man. Yeah, so what, what is it, now, now I forget, like, what is, is it methane that it releases or ammonia? It's ammonia, right? Yeah, because I think it's extremely nitrogenous. Uh-huh. Like, I think there's a lot of nitrogen. Yeah, that's why it's a great fertilizer. Guano. Yeah. But let me see really quick. Okay. Because I don't want to yeah. misinterpret. I got to know, I got to know about audience. the guano. You don't want to misrepresent it. Let's see. Guano. What should. Guano gas? Sure. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Okay, it's a highly effective manure, probably because of the nitrogen. Yep, yep, yep. Also used in like bombs, I think. Mm-hmm. During World War One, Two, human health. Oh, it also has. It's often home to a fungus. Huh. Ugh. Yeah, there could be many reasons why she got sick because of the guano. Yeah, it seems like. There's a fungus that grows in guano called histoplasma capsulatum, which causes a disease called histoplasmosis in humans, cats, and dogs. And it grows best in nitrogen-rich conditions in guano. But I know it's really hard to just breathe in guano. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, stay away from large piles of guano, I think is... Uh, everything I'm reading talks about histoplasmosis, which is inhaling spores of fungus that Oof. grow on bird and bat droppings. All yeah. right. I can't. Yeah. I mean, for whatever reason, Ugh. she got very sick, and so yeah. she returned to L.A. to live with her parents for a while. Okay. And they're still acting at this time? Okay. Post-kidnapping, back on the acting train. That's just... How do you recover from a kidnapping? I don't know. Yeah. Oh. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> it's derailing. 
Okay, so um, she went moved back to L.A., and then she was promoted in 1931 to assistant in archaeology and ethnology at the Southwestern wow. Museum, a position which she That's held so cool. until 1941. Wow. Yeah. I didn't realize her career was so long, actually. Yeah. So that's really nice. Yeah, that's cool. So in this role, and and it kind of changed a bit. I don't think she did too much more um, going to dig sites at this point. Maybe a little bit. Okay. But, but in this role, in addition to cataloging the findings from expeditions, she also made a series of trips to speak with indigenous peoples of California, um, including oh. from the Maidu, the Paiute, uh, the Pomo, and the Yurok tribes. So, yeah, during these trips, she documented the history, traditions, culture, and folklore of the tribes, which she preserved and published as articles for the Southwest Museum's journal. Um, And because of her heritage of being uh, indigenous herself, she understood the concerns and interests of the tribes she met with. Right. For instance, she redacted names when they desired it. So she would write up things and make them anonymous if that made them more comfortable but she also mm-hmm. gave co-authorship credits to many of the people she interviewed. And this, I think, is yeah. really big because she's going and talking to people who have the knowledge and have, like, honed all this history and things like that. And so they should be contributors to right. this work and giving credit, especially, like, I feel like this is, I mean, I don't want to go on a tangent, but I think this happens a lot with, like, helicopter science uh, where you like go into a new place and then, yeah, take the information that ind- indigenous peoples have like been honing or learning for a long period of time, and then not credit them. And so I think right, and treat them as study mm-hmm. specimens, not as humans contributing to the work equally, yes. or at least in some part. Yeah, you know. Yeah, so she gave them, either she, like, had them be kind of, like, editors, had them be editors for for what she was writing, or gave them co-authorship in a lot of cases. Yeah, that's great. And so, in this way, her reports, instead of taking things from these tribes, actually gave a voice to these overlooked people, um, rather than just simply taking knowledge from them and reporting on it. So, I think that's that's such a crucial, like difference Mm -hmm. in how you how you come at some of these things so as part of her work she published at least 20 papers in the museum journal master key these papers included things like um i might be pronouncing this wrong kachinadals california indian baby cradles and some yurok customs and beliefs and a number of other articles specifically on the yurok tribe so yeah she did a lot of i mean she i think she really straddled archaeology and anthropology. Yeah, that's and even some I guess archaeology goes with paleontology, but she wasn't really studying bones. She was more like finding sites. I was just thinking yeah. of how she would find those bones and Yeah, I mean I think but, it was yeah. mostly human artifacts, but then there was right. the sloth yeah. skull and, and things like that as well. Yeah, it's it's interesting that she transitioned to these more cultural studies, mm-hmm. but um, maybe that was just, you know, a role or just something that she was passionate about or maybe something the museum asked 
her to do Mm because they knew she would be good at it. Yeah, I'm I'm curious why she transitioned, Mm -hmm. but it's it's good that she did in some ways. But yeah, so despite her lack of university education, uh, much like Mary Anning, she conducted work at a high level of skill and impressed trained archaeologists around her with her discoveries and her insights. So it wasn't that she was just you know, there and, and maybe digging things up and being a good, like, worker. She was providing insights, um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, high levels of skill that made her respected, um, by people who maybe had more formal education in archaeology. Yeah. She wasn't just another person there. She wasn't, like, like, just another tech that, like, wasn't right. contributing intellectually and stuff like that. Not that texts yeah. don't do that, but you know what I mean. Like, yeah, contributing in all the ways that a scientist would. Yeah. All right. So during this time that she's working at the museum, she married the Italian actor Espero Oscar Di Corti, also known as Iron Eyes Cody. Oh, right. Have, okay. Have you heard of Iron Eyes Cody? Only in reading about Bertha Parker okay. Cody. <laughs> yeah. So, Iron Eyes Cody was known for portraying Native Americans in Hollywood films. <gasps> Wait, portraying or betraying? Portraying. <laughs> poor oh. <laughs> I thought you said betraying Native Americans. I was like, oh boy. No, portraying them. Okay. Um... And so when she married Iron Eyes Cody, she returned to the film industry and advocated for and supported indigenous actors. Oh, wow. Together with Iron Eyes Cody, uh, they both worked as consultants to ensure the respectful representation of indigenous people in TV and film. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So she's, you know, she's got a wide breadth of interests. That yeah. I, I love. I love when, uh, you know, people's history just kind of, not meanders, but like it takes un- unusual paths and isn't yeah linear. Yeah, I like that too. Because I think it's honestly more common for a lot of yeah. people, but many people sort of view it as a failure or uh, not even a failure, but just. I don't know. Yeah. Like, you can't get it. They're like, oh, well, now that I'm on this track, I can't change gears. And it's like, no, you can always change gears. There's always time. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So she acted as this consultant. And in the 1950s, they hosted a television program explaining Indian history and folklore. Okay. Okay. Wow. And then during... This gets kind of strange. So Iron Eyes Cody, he pretty much exclusively, he was in like 200 films or something. Whoa. Like he was in a lot of things. He was always pretty much portraying Native Americans. Mm-hmm. And he's this Italian guy. And so later in his career, he started insisting- Wait, he's Italian? Yes. His name is Espero Oscar Di Corti. Oh. And why? And did he- Wait, did he take on this fake persona with the iron by adding the iron eyes? I think that he 
was later like that. I don't know if that was like a famous role he was in. I don't oh, know if wait. he gave himself that name, but I think that's just what he I... became. Right. Called. There's the portrait. Oh, maybe you're getting to that. No. There's what? like the famous portrait of him. That's like supposed to be portraying. I feel like there's like an iconic portrait of him that is has been used in like the media for years as a representative of Native Americans. And then it's weird because he's not. <laughs> he's Italian. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting mixing people up. He was... Uh, I know that he was also known as the crying Indian because he was on a bunch of, like, um, anti-littering campaigns where it was, like, him dressed as a Native American crying over all the litter. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, the Keep Keep America Beautiful, like, public service announcements. That's also what he's, like, big known for. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, that's weird. He... He's Italian. That's really weird. Um, That's weird. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, it gets, it's complicated. So later, I think later in his life, he started insisting that he was Native American. Like, you know, white people were portraying Native Americans almost exclusively for a long time in media. So, (sighs) but then he started. Problematic. Then he started insisting he was Native American, claiming membership of several different tribes. Um, however, it was, con- when he was older, his half-sister was like, you're Italian. <laughs> um, and then after his death, it was confirmed that he was Sicilian and not at all Native American. I, that is really bizarre to me. He's like almost a Rachel Dolas all of his time. Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't even know what to think about it because I think he, he lived his life as it was he was fully immersed. It yeah. wasn't um like sometimes being Native American, sometimes not. He was like always dressed as if he was Native American and always acted as if he was Native American. Strange. Maybe it's, he really thought that or Ah, uh, yeah, I don't I'm, know. I can't it's hard to judge, I guess, without it's, knowing the whole story. Yeah, it's like it definitely gives me a lot of cringe vibes and I don't Yeah. But he, yeah, so, okay, here's what I will say, is that in 1995, Hollywood's Native American community as a whole honored him for his longstanding contribution to Native American causes, saying that although he was not Indian, his charitable deeds to the community were more important than his non-Indian heritage. All right. So, is it problematic that he pretended or convinced himself he was Native American? Yes, Probably, but did he strongly advocate then for Native Americans throughout his life? Yes. So, right. Yeah. He seemed so, to be trying yeah. to do a lot of good, even though maybe it's also He's a little questionable. Yeah. So, that's, that's all. Yeah. It's the story isn't about yeah. him, but I do find it very <laughs> strange. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. I was like, I know there's something about him, and then once you started, I was like, all right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, 
some other things that kind of happened during this time while um, they were mostly in Hollywood and she was married to Iron Eyes Cody. Um, in 1942, Billy, who is actually, I think it was Bertha's daughter. I think I said son earlier, but I think it's her daughter. Oh. <laughs> um <laughs> at the age of 17, was fatally shot by an accidental gunshot at her grandmother's farm. I don't know any more details what? about this. I don't know what happened, but that's it's tragic. That's so sad. Um, and then Bertha and Iron Eyes later adopted two Native American boys in the 1950s who they named Robert Tree Cody and Arthur William Cody. Aww. That's, wow, that's really sad about her daughter. I know, I know, yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't know what happened, but I mean, guns are dangerous. Yeah, yeah accidents. Hot take, Gun guns are dangerous. Are real, yeah. Okay, so Bertha, you know, I think she spent a lot of the remaining time in Hollywood advocating for you know, indigenous people in film. Right. And spent a lot of her, her remaining years doing that. She then died in 1978. Um, and her fame and recognition quickly faded. Hmm. And part of this might be that Iron Eyes Cody later published an auto his own autobiography where he falsely claimed that she was a partier and a drunk. So that probably didn't help her reputation. I don't know why. What? Like, there's a lot of, Sounds I just have a lot of guy. questions about this man, but. <sighs> so, yeah, so yeah. he claimed that in his book. And then additionally, in a lot of acknowledgments of Bertha's uh, contributions, it's mostly, mostly made in reference to the men in her life. Like, she is mostly right. referenced by her relationship to men. So she's yeah. referenced as Iron Cody Eye's wife, Arthur Parker's mm -hmm. daughter, Mark Harrington's niece. And for instance, her yeah. gravestone only says, quote, Mrs. Iron Eyes Cody. Oh my gosh. Um, additionally, that's. No, go it's ahead. It's not okay. Yep. She has a name. Yep. <laughs> she has a name. Um, additionally, she published under her various married names. So. She has, like, three different names she published under, which probably also contributes to oh, yeah. confusion and things like that. Yeah, still. Yeah. Regardless, kind of in summary, Bertha Parker was an anthropologist and archaeologist of Seneca and Abenaki descent. Although she did not get formal education in these subjects, she had a keen eye and great knack for it. She discovered at the time the oldest human artifacts in North America. She studied the cultures of other Native American peoples and was a stark advocate for Native American actors and the portrayal of indigenous peoples in film. And that's the life of Bertha Parker. Uh, that should really be a movie. You know, we right? do this a lot. <laughs> I'm always like, how is this not a movie? That's such an interesting person. <laughs> I know. She's like deep in caves. She's finding s giant sloths. She's getting kidnapped to Mexico. Yeah, uh, it's every I like. I kept reading three things. Crazy husbands. She had three crazy husbands. Crazy husbands. Yeah, who knows about the the short-lived one? Um, but yeah, I kept reading things and being like, "What?" 
Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's awesome. She made, and I kept being like, oh, she's done more and more like contributions. Like, oh, and then she did this. And I was like, yeah, it's just amazing. And yeah, so that's the true story of Bertha Parker. That's awesome. That's great. I love it. Woot, woot. Woot, woot. Woot, woot. Okie doke. Let's, uh, <laughs> sorry. No, good. I'm just so caffeinated. It's, it's, I'm going to crash so hard. Yeah, I'm going to need a coffee right after this, I can tell. Oh, man. I'm, like, caffeinated, but I'm, I'm, I'm on the outs, you know? I've had no food and, like, four cups of coffee in different forms. Oh, my God. <laughs> you must be dizzy. That's what happens to me. <laughs> Sunday fun day! Okay. My shout-out's pretty short, Okay. So. Love it. I'm on the burrito train after this. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> burrito. Work, 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 work. All right. So this is our... um. This is our Women Who Work section yeah. where we give shout outs to badass ladies making history and science today. Today! And so my shout out this week goes to Dr. Anna Grau Galofri, who led a study during her PhD at the University of British Columbia, where she and her team found that Mars was previously covered in ice sheets and not flowing rivers. Oh. Yeah. So, look, I didn't know any of this before reading this article. I didn't know the wrong thing and I didn't know the right thing. (laughs) Right. But now I know that (laughs) for a time, for the last 40 years almost, um, researchers have hypothesized, Mars researchers, Mm -hmm have hypothesized that many of the rifts and valleys that we can see on the surface of Mars uh, were caused by rivers that used to flow across the Mars surface. This was a hypothesis, Mm -hmm. right? However, Anna and her team felt that the valleys looked incredibly similar to those seen in the Canadian Arctic, many of which were formed by glaciers and then you know, resulting melting mm. of glaciers, okay. essentially, which is not the same as a river. Yeah. This is like more runoff or um, banks of water that form underneath a glacier on top of land or something like, you know, more yeah. like that or next to the glacier. Yeah. And the valleys that they saw on the surface of Mars were especially similar to desert regions of the Canadian Arctic that are pretty similar in environment to what the Mars environment likely was like billions of years ago when it was farther from the sun and a lot colder. Gotcha. And so they used new algorithms developed by Anna to study over 10,000 valleys on Mars comparing them to valleys on Earth that they know to be formed by different causes, like flowing water, glaciers, and other potential causes. (laughs) Um, And they found that there were very few valleys on Mars that were formed, that seemed to be formed by rivers, or that would meet the sort of algorithms for what it would look like to be formed by rivers. Okay. 
I didn't look that much into the algorithms themselves because that's all way above my head. I forgive you. (laughs) Yeah. And that most of the 10,000 valleys on Mars match models of valley formation that is caused by glacial melting. Oh, cool. Okay. And so it's a cool study because not only do they sort of upend this sort of long term hypothesis about the valleys on Mars, but because she developed these new computational methods that could be used to study valley formations on a lot of other planets. And so um, it has sort of far-reaching effects, nice. this, um, this study. Yeah. So they can see and if other, other similar kind of patterns on other planets might also be caused by past glaciers yeah and then it's cool because you know they're comparing they basically make these models looking at geological um, formations on earth right Mm -hmm. and what we know likely cause those geological formations and then yeah she's made them so that they're kind of generalizable to just geological formations on any planet Nice. Um, yeah, so it's pretty cool. And yeah, that's my shout out for today. I love it. Mars yeah. and glaciers. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's cool. Yeah. No, it's nice to be able to utilize things that we are able to like directly test and have more evidence of on our planet mm-hmm. to try to understand what happened on other planets. Awesome. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Learning things every day. Seriously. <laughs> All right. Well, that was our episode. Thank you so much for turning in. Thank you so much for turning in. I think my face for is melting telling. with all this caffeine. <laughs> Thank you so much for yeah. listening. If you like the podcast, please share, rate, review chat with us on twitter engage in some way we love to hear it we're at home we like contact with people i know i need it i need it i crave it i want some more of it um (laughs) thank you also to artichoke for our awesome theme music and caitlin friesen for our awesome art and as always go stimulate stimulate yourself Okay, Turtles. I gotta get food in Bye. me before I pass out. <laughs> yeah, good idea. Bye. Bye.